0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved.
1: Episode 11, air date April 5th, 2013. Dr. V.A. Shiva Ayadurai, Chairman and CEO Cytosol Incorporation, founder and director EcoMail Incorporation on the invention of email, what it means to science, innovation, and you. We Request the joint secretary of the host institution Tirumati C. A. Vasuki ma'am to welcome and introduce Dr. V. A. Shiva Ayadurai sir to the gathering. Ma'am please. Ask him to come. Good afternoon to everybody. We are very privileged to have Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, our esteemed guest in today's celebration. In one word to introduce him he is the email inventor of the email. We thank you, sir, for kindly accepting our invitation to you being here to deliver a special lecture in spite of your tight schedules. We extend you a warm welcome to Coimbatore, the cotton city of South India. Shiva Ayadiray is a renowned scientist and entrepreneur and an educator. What Dr. Abdul Kalam mentioned is what you see in him. Most importantly, he is an inventor of email, born in Bombay in India. Shiva Ayyadurai moved to America at the age of seven and got his bachelor's degree and doctoral degree at MIT. I'm sure you would have heard about MIT. Spanning the fields of electrical engineering, computer science, media arts, and sciences. He lives in Belmont, USA, and presently he is teaching a pioneering new course called System Visualization in MIT Department of Comparative Media Studies. He is the Chairman and CEO of Cytosol Incorporation and the Executive Director of International Center for integrated systems located in Cambridge, USA. He is the founder of Ecomail Incorporation, which has now grown nearly to $200 million in market value. I welcome you, sir, to the podium to deliver your lecture on the invention of email. Thank you.
0: Thank you. OK, is that better? OK. So I'm going to uh, share with you a story and the story is really my journey as both an inventor and an entrepreneur. But I think what's more important that, by the way can everyone understand me? I know I have an American accent, can you all understand me? Yes? Okay. So you know the, uh, I think the, the theme of this talk is about shaping uh, or the science for shaping the future of India. So I'm going to get to that, but I'm going to share with you my own journey because ultimately I think each one of us has our own personal journey. And in only sharing that, I think do we connect because it's very easy to talk about theories and make general statements. I'm going to share with you a very, very personal journey. So what I want to do is I want to dedicate this talk to my mom. My mom actually grew up in a small village called Paramankurthy. She was a very interesting woman. Uh, Her father left her when she was 8 years old ran off with the maid okay now that's unheard of in India right people don't get divorced so this was in 1940s you have a man with eight kids who leaves the family and so my mom grew up very very independent wanting to be an independent woman in many ways she wanted to really not get married when she she recently died the beginning of this year and she said you know I didn't really want to get married nothing against my father who's here by the way but uh, So she grew up an independent woman, she went on to get a degree in statistics and master's, ended up becoming the chairperson of the math department in Bombay of Don Bosco School. So she was a very independent woman. But she was a fighter and I'll get to that. When I was fighting the government in India, my mom actually came to Delhi and said fight. So, uh, so I want to dedicate this to her. But I grew up in Bombay, even though I live in the United States, I grew up in the city of Bombay in Chembur. I was born there. And I left um, people have been to Bombay, everyone knows Bombay, but I had two very interesting uh, um, I think some people are, I had two very interesting worlds, even in India. I grew up in Bombay, but I also had the experience of growing in a village. In the summers, I gro- go to a village. My grandparents were farmers. they, uh, uh, they grew rice and, and peanuts, and they also grew cotton. so the food that fed India some of it and some of the clothing came from their farm very small farm my grandmother was a village shaman means um, some people call it siddhar or yogi she could look at your face and she could predict what was going on inside your body in the ancient siddhar texts they called this samudrika lakshanam okay so there's various sciences that existed in traditional systems of medicine my grandmother practiced that so I would see her as a young child with 30, 40 people lined up at her house and she could look at them and predict what was going on. So I was fascinated by the system of medicine as a young kid and and I for many, many years wanted to be a medical doctor. So in India, you know, as a system, so I, I'm fundamentally a system scientist. I have four degrees from MIT, one in electrical engineering, I'll talk about mechanical engineering, architecture and design, but also biology. But our, but our, Rishis, even though they dressed in these saccharine robes and we think they were religious people, they were actually system scientists. They actually looked at the world as large-scale systems. And I'll get to that. But, so I had a very interesting background, city, village life, etc. But the other thing that my grandmother brought me this is actually a picture of Rama, was she, she used to tell me these wonderful stories. And some of you may have known of the Ramayana and Hanuman and the Mahabharata. So I grew up as a young child on her lap and she would tell me these amazing stories of great heroes. Heroes who fought for the, for the right things in life. You know, this is a, you know, Rama fighting Ravana. So these were the stories I grew up with. And the stories were also about devotion and friendship. That the most important thing in life was loyalty and devotion and fighting for what, 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 what was most important that you cared about. And that's a part of science that we need to talk about today, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about biology, we're not going to talk about going to the moon, others have talked about that. But we're going to talk about what real science is, and what really makes a scientist. And it comes from this kind of love and devotion to what truth is. So let's talk about revolutionary. That's what I ended up becoming. This is a famous quote by Emiliano Zapata. He was a famous Mexican revolutionary who said, Es mejor morir a pie que continuar viviendo salas rodillas anyone know Spanish what it means is that it is better to die on your feet than to continue living on your knees it's a very very beautiful quote but it's a theme of what I think great science requires okay it's, it's a theme about what great science requires so for me my heroes were Bhagat Singh I know Gandhi is the father of our nation but I never considered him my personal hero it was Bhagat Singh who was my personal hero the other heroes were Crazy Horse. Some of you may know him, he was an American Indian who fought the white man, and he died. My hero was Lenin, you know, the great Russian revolutionary. And if you look at the history of Russia, in a period of two years, they wiped out literacy, and it was Russia who challenged America with Sputnik. And it was because of the Bolshevik Revolution, which overnight transformed that country. And my hero is obviously Che Guevara. You can clap if you want, great man. And you know, Che Che actually came to India, right? But Che believed that ultimately revolutionaries driven by great feelings of love, okay? And Che was a medical doctor and a scientist. And he transformed Cuba. To this day, Cuba sends more medical doctors than any other country in the United States. Yes, Cuba has other issues, but they transformed that country. So these were my heroes. So I think... General Secretary said, I, you know, I went to MIT, but many of you don't know, before I came to MIT, I already had invented email when I was 14 years old. And I'll talk about that. And the facts are black and white. So by the time I came to MIT, I wasn't that interested in computer science. In fact, I didn't even wanna go to school. I actually wanted to be a carpenter, believe it or not. So when I came to MIT, I was very interested in systems, how systems operated. And you can't see this, but that's actually a picture of a flag that I'm burning. It's a South African flag on the steps of MIT. So if you remember in 1980s, the South African government still had apartheid. So I had led a demonstration of 500 people and I burned the, step, uh, burned the flag. And this is a picture of me fighting with the MIT president. And this appeared in the front page. MIT and other universities, so-called scholars and great scientists, had millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars investments in South Africa. Right? I don't think that's good science, right? You're supporting a regime which day in and days out oppresses thousands of people and to exploit wealth. That is not science. So I protested and eventually MIT pulled out. Here's another famous uh, demonstration. A friend of mine was a Tamilian who went back to Sri Lanka to fight and he was actually imprisoned by the Jayawardena government. And I actually led a big pro- protest when Premadasa came, and we eventually got him out. So uh, this is my career at MIT, okay, as an undergraduate. And any of you who want to do this career, I think it's, it's not a bad thing. It was a lot of fun. When I went to do my PhD at the age of 40, I was the only student the United States that invaded Iraq, and I pulled out a sign in front of 8,000 people. Half of the crowd booed me, and the other half clapped for me. And then, this I'll talk about. This was in 2009 when I challenged CSIR, who had appointed me as additional secretary, and I put out an honest report, which got released to the press, and I had to leave India up through Nepal, and very few in the press, if any of the press, I'll talk about it, and I'll talk about it. So this was on Star TV, eight hours. So I have always been a revolutionary, and I always will be, and I'm a fighter. That was one part of my life. But in parallel to that, I had another part of my life. I'm an innovator. I'm I'm, I'm a very creative person. I have uh, degrees in art and science, and it's always part of me. So to me, being a revolutionary and being an innovator go hand in hand. You cannot divorce them. In fact, innovation is revolution. So here's a picture of me, 1980. I was 15 years old. I had just created the first email system, and this appeared in the local newspaper. And this is a front page, 1981 of the MIT newspaper, out of 1,040 students they listed three that had done some interesting work and this is talking about the student who created the first email system. This is back in 1981, when very few of you even had an email address, if you had one. And this is the first copyright for email. Okay, this is the first copyright. In 1980s, in fact, it was not until 1995 software patents were even ex- accepted, you couldn't even patent software. So the only way you protected anything you did was email. So I came up with the term email. In the Oxford English Dictionary, the first use of it is 1979, and the Merriam-Webster is 1982, and that's when this was copyrighted. And this was not just a copyright, it was the email system. So this was the work of a 14-year-old kid, okay? And. It's the work of a 14-year-old brown-skinned Indian immigrant kid. Okay. And then this was the user's manual, right? So this was used by 500 people. It was not just theoretical; it was an enterprise-class system. And I'll come back to it. 50,000 lines of code. So I went on to MIT, and. When I went to MIT, the first degree I did was Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, but again, I had done so much coding by the time I was 17 years old, I was bored in my computer science classes. So when I came to MIT in 1981, I was interested more in systems. Why was there oppression? Why was there rich and poor? Why was there a caste system? So I worked with, with Noam Chomsky, some of you may know him, Noam Chomsky is the greatest linguist. He actually is. He's he's also an author. He's he's one of the few Institute professors. So I was very curious in understanding why did this hierarchy exist. So I'm a 17 year old kid. I want to understand why were there untouchables? Why were this? Why was this caste system? Why was why was there inequality in the world? I want to understand the system. Right? The system's problem. I had, after all, created email, which was a system, and this was just another system, and. I discovered many fascinating things. I discovered that in the 8th century, there was a Sankaracharya movement. And Sankaracharya was not just a religious figure, he asked a much more fundamental question. If there's equality in heaven, why isn't there equality on earth? And this is something that's forgotten, that's the fundamental question he asked. And by the 15th, 16th century, believe it or not, the caste system was starting to dwindle. And when the British came, they initially wanted to trade with the emerging traders, And then what ended up happening in India was the British found it more advantageous to support feudalism, the decaying feudal lords, and in fact, they resurrected pre-8th century Indian caste law. So they didn't impose British law, but they imposed 8th century Indian caste law. So a lot of people in this audience probably don't understand that, but that's what I studied as an 18-year-old kid. I found out that India never got freedom. In fact, the British actually were planning on leaving India. That's why we don't have a Declaration of Independence in India. We have transfer of power, right? It's called transfer of power. So we transferred power from a British feudalism to an Indian feudalism, and I'll talk about that. But anyway, I finished that, started one company, and we sold it to IBM, and then I came back to MIT. So I've been in and out. Came to MIT, left, and I came back to the Media Lab. The Media Lab was very interesting. It was the first lab of its kind in 1987 which brought together artists and technologists. So you had ballet dancers and you had engineers. You had painters and you had computer scientists. And I ended up doing my degree in, in, in scientific visualization where we'd visualize very, very complex things using art and animation. And I ended up doing another degree in also wave wave propagation, so I did two masters. But I was fascinated with, uh, so, uh, But but my interest was always in these two fields, so it was art and technology. So the first company I started out of MIT was we actually created a company called Millennium Software and Productions which was mixing art and technology. So this is in 1993 when the internet is just about to take off. So I did art, a lot of my friends were artists and musicians and we thought that the internet would be a revolutionary medium because if you look at the history of art, you typically have these gatekeepers, agents. So we thought the internet would let people go direct. And uh, we didn't make any money doing this company. We put up 5,000 artists online. I ended up writing a book called Arts on the Internet, which the Sloan School of Management, who is a dean called uh, Glenn Urban, he was also a sculptor, gave a great quote. And I wrote another book called The Internet Guide to Publicity, which was to help small businesses. But while I was doing that, one of my interests was pattern analysis. I was very interested, my PhD at the time was I was interested in analyzing patterns, sound patterns, wave patterns, uh, handwriting recognition. And the White House ran a contest when Clinton was in office, which was to analyze President Clinton's email. In 1993, the White House was receiving about 5,000 emails per day, and they were doing it manually. People would read the emails by hand, and they would categorize them. So the White House with the National Institute of Standards ran a contest, I was a PhD student at MIT at the time, there were five public companies, I entered this contest and I ended up winning and, and we started a company called Echomail and what Echomail did was it basically would take email in, we could filter it, we could data warehouse and we analyzed it. We could extract the attitude of the email. What were the issues and what people were thinking? Again, this was not email that I'd done as a 14-year-old kid. This is now me as a 30-year-old adult. And Echomail became, our first client was AT&T, then Nike, then Citibank, and we grew it to about a 200 million value company and it still exists today. But Echomail was this technology infrastructure. Um, We got various patents out of it, right? Three major patents came out of it. The United States Senate used it, this was in the front page of USA Today. And MIT's technology review newspaper started calling me Dr. Email. And then the Wall Street Journal wrote an article, uh, this of Echomail can store, sort the deluge of email. So we became the infrastructure, so th- today if you send an email to Hilton Hotels, you know, our technology will analyze that email, so we reduce the cost of customer service. And we're also used for outbound marketing. So Echomail was a great, great company. So after I finished Echomail in 2003, I went back to MIT. Because remember, I left in the middle of my PhD. So I'm 40 years old, I go back to do my PhD. And I was very interested in a new field called systems biology. So biology, if you remember, prior to the Human Genome Project, which took place in 2000, everyone thought what made you and me different was genetics. But it's not, not only that, they thought the difference between you and a worm, a small worm, was the number of genes. So when the Human Genome Project started, which is the genetic code, um, people thought that the difference was you had 500,000 genes and a worm had about 19,000. Well, it turned out by the end of the Genome Project, we have the same number of genes as a worm. We have about 19,000 genes, and a worm has about 19,000 genes. So what became more interesting was not the genes, but the proteins, right? So it's not the nucleus that's important, but what goes on in the cytoplasm. So systems biology came up as a new field around 2003, and systems biology basically said that it's the interaction of proteins that make us who we are. So I ended up studying systems biology, and for me, after I finished that, I won a Fulbright because I was always interested in looking at Western medicine and reconnecting it to what I saw my grandmother do in that village, which is Eastern Systems of Medicine. So I applied for a Fulbright to go back to India and to study Siddha and Ayurveda, combine it with systems biology, it was pretty radical. And this was a front page article that appeared in the MIT newspaper talking about this person going back to India with four degrees. So I went back to India and this is a question I was interested in. Can you look at systems biology which was based on understanding the genome and this is, you can't see, but this is Siddha which says we have Prakriti or we have Purusha, we have Prakriti, we have the five elements the says, and those things give rise to vat, pip and cough. and how do you relate these two worlds? Again, another systems problem. So, when I ended up finishing that, I was in India, and I was about to leave in June 2009, and I got recruited, appointed, to become an additional secretary in CSIR. It was a new position that India had opened up, called Outstanding Scientists, Technologists of Indian Origin. I was the first one appointed and my job was I would get to start a whole new division because CSIR had 37 labs, 4,500 scientists, um, 2,000 patents but it only produced $2 million in revenue over 60 years. Okay, so it not that good, it, it was not working. And in fact, Nehru had set up CSIR originally to be an innovation institute. It would create technology for the masses of Indians. But what CSIR ended up becoming was a institute that published papers and patented. And I'll come back to this. But I finished that and I'll come back to the story because this is a very interesting story. But after I came back from India, I started t- combining systems biology and medicine. I wrote a paper that came out called Cytosolve. We created a center in Cambridge called the Center for Integrative Systems. And we just created this new company, Cytosolve, which actually takes Siddab principles and we take molecular biology and we just raised about uh, six crows and we're valued at almost uh, uh, 15 million dollars right now. So we just did this, but we have a whole new way to find new types of medication, new types of drugs that mixes Indian and Eastern systems of, me- Western systems of medicine. In addition, when I came back, some of you may know someone called Deepak Chopra. Deepak and I, I've created a whole new core series that actually combines Western systems theory and Indian systems of medicine. So I've been able to do what i wanted to do which was to revolutionize medicine but what i want to talk about is so those are things i did after india but i want to talk about what happened in india i want to share with you because the goal of this conference is science for shaping the future of india so what i want to talk to you about is i I fundamentally believe a scientist's fundamental goal is to tell the truth that's what science is right science is about exploring the truth and sharing the truth and I believe great science is done by those people who have that commitment to do that. However, when we look at science, the biggest barrier to science today is those people in science who don't allow that freedom to take place. I wanna share with you two personal stories that will, and then I'll end up with what I think science should be about. So when I got appointed to CSIR, within three months of being there, I wrote a report. And this report, by the way, is available online which I basically, the goal of hiring me was to generate new companies. CSIR had 2500 patents and the idea was I went throughout India, I spoke to nearly 1500 scientists and I discovered about 12 innovations that we could probably translate to about a billion dollars in revenue. So I I wrote a blueprint for Indian innovation. Um, The ex-SEBI chairman Mr. Damodharan approved this, but the person that hired me really didn't do anything. I think the satisfaction was we have an MIT person there, but the goal was not to really allow me to do something. So this report, I also was critical of what would need to change in India. This report got released to the press, and I had sent this report to the Indian scientists for their feedback, because I always believed in participatory management. I believed everyone should participate, that everyone is equal. So I sent it out to the 4,500 scientists review. Well the result was this occurred, okay? So this was front page of Hindustan Times, all over India, and so I was hired and fired in five months, and then I did a interview for Star News, and the day I was gonna do the interview, uh, moments before I got a call, saying that if you do this interview, you'll be arrested. This is by CSIR. Supposed scientists. I did the interview for one reason, because I said if I don't speak up, who else will? Right? I have that luxury. So after I did this interview, it appeared on Star News. Many, many news coverage took place all over the world. New York Times picked up on it. And Bhargava, who is a scientist within the Indian system, he was the only one who wrote to the Prime Minister. And he said, and you could read it, he said, Shiva's report is excellent. Okay, he's been in the CSIR system for 50 years. And then he went on to say, it would be unfortunate if Shiva had to leave, you should meet with him. So Dr. Singh did not meet with me. I gave my resignation letter and I said it was unfortunate that I wasn't able to serve and then I was threatened under arrest and very few people know about it. I actually had to leave India at night across the Nepal border, cross to Kathmandu, go to Qatar and I landed. This is a true story. And this was all about what? Writing an honest report. Now I had a a bungalow seven acres in Delhi My father-in-law at the time said, you should just be quiet, one day you'll be the Minister of Science and Technology. All right? But you're not talking to someone who just wants to do that, right? You're talking to someone with a different background. So when I landed back in the the United States, Nature magazine, everyone know of Nature? The most prestigious scientific magazine. Nature had me write a commentary on my experience in India. And I wrote an article that said, innovation demands freedom. And what I said was that I had found amazing scientists in the Indian system but they were all repeating the same thing. They were plagued by a system which was based not on meritocracy but which significantly oppressed them and did not let innovation come out. And my, my system said, let's have an open forum to discuss this. Well, the Indian CSIR threatened to sue nature and this article was banned. Okay? It's still available on the internet. So when I came back to India, uh, to the United States, I decided that I would share the story of that 14-year-old kid who invented email. Not for me, but I wanted to let everyone know that innovation could occur anytime, anyplace, by anybody. That there were many scientists in the Indian system and there were many people in the United States who were smart. So I decided to share the story. So, So, Huffington Post carried a story about this and at the time, if you know, in the United States last year, the United States Postal Service announced that it was going out of business. So in 1997, I had met with the Postal Service and told them that they should be involved in the email business. And that's when I realized many people did not know what email was. What is email? It's a very interesting question. Email is not SMS. It's not the exchange of text messages. Email is a system. And so I shared this story. We did this whole thing with... with, and then Time Magazine contacted me and they said, Shiva, we'd like to see all your materials. So my mother, who was very sick at the time, had saved all the materials for me, those 50,000 lines of code, all the work that I had done when I was that 14-year-old kid. So I gave all the, the stuff to Doug Ameth, who was a technology editor, and Doug reviewed all this and he wrote this article said the man who invented email, clearly this guy invented email. There were others who had said that they had invented email, but when you look at the facts, I'll get to that is not email. What they did was text messaging. And then, Smithsonian, uh, everyone heard of the Smithsonian? Smithsonian is the biggest museum, I think, for history in the world. So, Smithsonian asked for my work. I gave it to them, and they wrote an article. Now, this is when the excitement started in the United States, okay? So, when the Washington Post published this, there were a set of, again, so-called scientists who believe they determine what history is. And they had written that someone else had invented email when the facts did not come. So they started publishing all sorts of negative articles that appeared in the press. Calling me an imposter. In fact, saying some horrible things. And you can read some of this. Racist, negative things that an Indian obviously did not invent email. Okay? Now, who was behind this? Well, who was behind this was a scientific organization of scientists scientific historians who believe they own the history of everything. The fact that a 14-year-old brown-skinned kid in Newark, New Jersey... By the way, if anyone's been to Newark, it's a very poor inner city. Invented email did not compute for them. Email must have been produced at MIT or Stanford, not in Newark, New Jersey, right? Now, what's fascinating is when you look at this story, the so-called scientists who wrote the story gets funded by this organization, a multi-billion-dollar military contractor who uses the at logo and in the midst of this controversy they award this guy ray tomlinson an award as the inventor of email so it's a fascinating you can go read all about this all on the internet so fortunately noam chomsky who's the most by the way noam chomsky is the most cited scientist in human history he is more cited than jesus christ socrates okay so noam wrote an article on my behalf, Noam reviewed the data. And what's fascinating is you will see on the internet how the existing people actually try to change their history. There are references in Wikipedia of inventions that I, that I had done, people start deleting. So it's a fascinating thing to watch, how scientists, quote unquote, scientists behave. So you can go read about it. But what I want to talk about it is the facts, okay? Those two examples, what I shared with you, are how quote unquote scientists behave when they do not want to look at reality. But when you look at the invention of email, what was email? Now, if you go online, you'll actually see this list of all the different features that were in email. What was email? Email was the electronic version, I'm gonna repeat this, it's the electronic version of the inner office paper-based mail system. Anyone over the age of 40 will remember, every office in the world has a paper-based mail system. You had an inbox, an outbox, the address book, you had folders, you had return receipt. It was not just one element, it was that whole system. Everyone clear? The inner office paper-based mail system. Emphasis on the word system. And these were my notes as that 14-year-old kid. So I delineate what each one of those, memo, BCC, all those carbon copy, carbon copy is literally a typewriter. And what I did was, these were the feature lists. So this 14-year-old kid in 1978 50,000 lines of code, that's what I wrote. This was not some small system. And this was done by an Indian immigrant in Newark, New Jersey. Alright? And if you go online, you'll see the code, and if you'll see, it was called email, the first program. Now, why did I call it email? Well, in 1978, in the Fortran programming language, you had a five-character limit on what w- variables could be called. You could have called it electro-mail, electric mail. It was called email. For a very specific reason, it had a five-character limit. So if you go look, these are all the old code samples. You know the inbox, the outbox, all those things. What, what was coded up? I'm just going to fly through this. So that's what email was. Email was the emulation of the inner office mail system. And so when you look at this story, what's fascinating is when we were when the controversy broke, you'll find that in 1977 one of the so-called people who attacked me, we found a document that he had written which he said in 1977, we have no interest in creating the inner organizational mail system, okay? But that's what email was. So it was created prior to 1970, it was text messaging, which is as old as a telegraph, but it's not email. So this was, uh, my mentor was Les Michelson, and Les you know, gave this very interesting quote to the press recently. But what I want to talk about now and and finish up is, you know, what is science? And I I think as I mentioned, to me, science is really about exploring the truth and it's really about, as it says, uh, seeing things as they truly are, right? There's a meditation form, some of you may know that, uh, I've tried various meditation forms, Goenka has called Vipassana, which is seeing things as they truly are not as you would like them to be. But science is really about seeing reality. So that's my definition of science. It's not about biology or it's not about chemistry. It's about seeing things as they truly are. And so what's a scientist, right? How many people here want to be scientists? Anyone? Just one? Wow. Okay. Two, three. Okay. So, uh, but a scientist to me is ultimately a revolutionary and a scientist ultimately wants to tell the truth no matter how hard it is for them. Let me, so no, one, no women want to be scientists? Is that true? Does any women want to be scientists? Wow. Is this an art club? Oh, okay. All right. So, so the issue is what kind of scientists do we want to be? And I just want to ask you some questions. Now, there is a type of science which was controlled by the Catholic Church, Right? for centuries and that science persecuted a guy by the name of Galileo everyone remember Galileo he said that the Sun was the center of the universe anyone know what happened to him he went through an inquisition by the Catholic Church which is a feudal organization and it was only I think this is 1992 300 years later, 400 years later that the Catholic Church finally absolved Galileo 400 years later it took to absolve this guy for a crime he did not commit. He simply said the sun was the center of the universe. So that's one type of, so so these people have claimed to do science, right? I don't think we want to be that kind of scientist, maybe some of you do, I don't. Here's another type of scientist. There was a guy called Mishkin. Everyone know in 2009, the entire financial system collapsed, right? We had a big economic collapse. Frederick Mishkin is a professor at Columbia University. He writes a report called The Stability of the Icelandic Economy. He gets paid by the Icelandic government and subsequent after that, there is a, a, this is a great movie. If, if If the college has not shown this movie, you should show this, it's called The Inside Job. It's a great movie, it just won an Oscar. But what turned out is that the Icelandic economy collapsed, right? So Mishkin had written a false report because he was paid by the Icelandic government. And here's a scientist doing supposed science. He has vested interests. That is not science, but that some people call him a scientist and he still has his position at Columbia University. Luckily, the, uh, Matt Damon did this, it's a great narration. You should see, it's a great, great movie because it shows the inside job that occurs in science. Another great story is Dentists used to tell people to smoke. I don't know if you know that. Um, this is a book that just came out called The Golden Holocaust. Science magazine, science, right, very prestigious, they just reviewed this book. It talks about how for 50 years, for 50 years, medical doctors and scientists told people it was okay to smoke, that it was harmless. In fact, they wrote papers on this. Okay, another type of science. The reason I'm bringing this up to you, because they're talking about science, for shaping the future of India, right? So we got to understand what science should not be. Because it's very, very easy to think that science is about the truth, but what I'm sharing with you today is that science can easily be bought, and it can also be be controlled by vested interests. It is not a pure thing. People write narratives, right? So that's a narrative. This is a narrative, telling people that the Icelandic economy is good. And you put your Columbia University professor seal on it, we all believe it, okay? So there's another type of science, and we have to consider what the future of India is, it's shaping the future of India. One is that you want to beg to people all your life, right? Another is where I have to do this, I have to run away from my country that I wanted to serve in 2009. And that this article becomes banned. So I don't think that's the kind of science, but to me, some of the great scientists are people like Lenin, people like Che, And if you want to look at right here, the Siddhars, who lived right here in in India. If you look at what the Siddhars actually were, they were actually scientists. Yes, there was a religious connotation to it, but in your own land, in our own land, we're probably the greatest system scientists that ever lived. And these were Siddhars, which is a tradition of Tamil Nadu, it's a tradition of India. In fact, these people explored chemistry, they explored yoga, And if you go to the United States, our yoga is on every corner. That came right from Siddharth. We know that they explored meditation. They explored heavy metals. It turns out that arsenic is actually very good for heart patients. It turns out mercury in small amounts actually helps neurodegenerative diseases. And Siddharth practiced this. And all of this is indigenous science that was to India. People had one aim, truth. And many of them were against the existing priesthood and the caste system of their times, if you looked at it. So I propose to you that if you want a science that for shaping the future of India, it comes from these role models, and not from the other role models that we've seen. Great role models, you know? It's combining heart and mind. It's not just about the mind, because the mind can be very, very clever and you can manipulate facts, but we have to combine heart and mind. So for me, what is the science for shaping the future of India? It's innovation anytime, place, by anybody, anytime. That's what the future of science is. So you can have science and you can have technology, but science innovation is what bridges it. And what I want to let you know is that, that you know this thing that I did at CSIR is still available. You know, I'm still willing to do this because I found 12 scientists within the CSIR system who could still innovate and we could generate a billion dollars in revenue for India. So I'm willing to serve India if it wants. But what I've done is since that time we went and created Cytosolve, as I mentioned. Cytosolve is a very interesting company. If you look at the modern drug development system, it takes about $5 billion to produce a single drug right now. 13 years. And it's an open system. And only 20% of drugs make it. What we've done is we've created a new solution called Cytosolve. We raise money for it and we're about, in nine months, we're about to come up with our first drug for pancreatic cancer. It'll become, we're going to the FDA approval starting next month for it so this is within nine months it's a revolutionary new approach but it combines our eastern systems approach with western systems biology I can talk more about this one of the interesting things is what we've done is we've taken for example all the molecular pathways we've merged them together for example curcumin is what's in our turmeric manjul, halbi right so we've been able to map out every molecular pathway and see all the places that curcumin interacts it's the first kind model of its kind and we're able to definitively show how curcumin in the Siddha and Ayurvedic system, curcumin, turmeric is known as a tridosic herb because it hits all systems, vat, pith and ayam or vat, pith and kapha. Well when you look at it, it actually hits multiple systems even at the cellular level. So what the rishis and yogis said actually is matching with what's going on at the biological level. The other thing that I believe and I want to leave you with this is that everything is a system. When you look back at what the rishis said, when they said vatha, pitta, kaffa, that really related to transport, process, and storage. So the rishis were actually system scientists. They actually had figured out system theory. The West doesn't know what their language is, and that's one of the breakthroughs I think we've done. The other thing is when you get time, um, Deepak Chopra is a celebrated MD in the United States. Deepak, I've created a whole new course series, for MDs in the United States to teach MDs about our Eastern systems of medicine, but in their Western terms. So we've created this whole new course program that we're just releasing. And the last thing I want to end you with is that I've, uh, this is gonna be going live. I I actually have a nonprofit foundation that we've started um, to let innovation take place in villages as well as inner cities. Because email was created in an inner city. And my view is that, and we've called it the Innovation Core just like the Peace Corps, and the idea is to bridge innovation across both worlds. And what I want to end, end with you is that that email was invented in 1978 by an Indian immigrant in Newark, New Jersey, and this is a fact. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir, for your special lecture, which spares through stories, history, and then to the world of emails. Your adventurous journey of life was both fascinating and inspiring to us. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. On behalf of ISCA and Konganada Arts and Science College, I thank you very much, sir, for your very great and useful invention. Email to the world of communication. I thank you, sir, for your presence over here and made us feel honored. We are grateful. Uh, to you for your incomparable uh, lecture filled with many useful and interesting information. You motivated us and made us realize innovation can come from anybody, anywhere and at any time. Sir, you proved that you are not only an inventor, scientist and technologist but a multi-talented revolutionary. Thank you, sir.